John chapter 14, beginning at verse 1. In John 14, Jesus says to his disciples, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, and believe also in me. If it were not uh, in my Father's house, verse 2, there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to, to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Throughout the centuries, uh, these words have not been favorably received by uh, many of those who seek to value all religious paths, all uh, spiritual vitality of any kind, and who wish to honor all kinds of spiritual striving. In Proverbs 21, verse 2, we're told that every way of man seems right in his own eyes. And this might help to explain why there are so many ways <laughs> and opinions of what it means to live the good life or how to please God. But Jesus declares to us this morning in these words from John 14 that he alone is the way. very clear, isn't it? <laughs> it's lucid. It's not difficult, but a lot of people don't like it. There are many people in the world who suppress this truth in unrighteousness. If you're like me, you may have quoted this verse to someone who ended up being completely repulsed by the idea. It's so exclusive, so narrow-minded. And yet, why should any of us assume that the world should conform to our own tastes and our own assumptions preferences. As John Adams once famously said, facts are stubborn things. And whatever may be the, our inclinations or our wishes or the dictates of our passion, they cannot alter the state of facts and evidence. The fact is, Jesus really did say this. And he also vindicated his claim by fulfilling all that was promised of him by the Old Testament prophets chief among them being his sacrificial death and his glorious resurrection. But this morning, I'd actually like to focus on the first couple of verses in John 14. The weight of this passage is definitely there in John 14, 6. He is the only way. But there's something really significant about what he says at the earliest part of this passage, where he says in verses 2 and 3 particularly, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. That's what I want to focus on this morning. Studying this, these verses closely and then comparing them with what uh, Jesus seems to be alluding to in the Old Testament I think will help us to see more clearly how salvation through Christ alone has been the message of the scriptures from the very beginning. 
When I first became a Christian, a friend bought me a New King James Bible. Uh, any of you use the New King James? Raise your hand if you still use New King James. Some people, all right. So the New King James is just a kind of an updated version of the King James, and both the King James and the New King James um, read this way. In my father's house are many mansions. Does that ring a bell? You guys heard that translation before? Uh, as I ha- because that's the first translation that I encountered, I still have that uh, sort of echoing in my head whenever I read this text. In my father's house are many mansions. Sometimes you may even hear Christians say things like, you know, Jesus is a carpenter, and since he's been gone 2,000 years, just imagine what our mansions are going to look like. He's been at it a long time. In reality, I think this way of thinking about Jesus' words here in John 14 is actually a confusion of the gospel with the American dream. It's not what the text says, actually. You see, Jesus doesn't really say anything in this text about building extravagantly large houses for us, which is what we tend to think of when we hear the word mansion. In fact, reading it that way doesn't even make sense since the mansions Jesus referred to are somehow all located within the Father's house. In my Father's house are many mansions. Are we meant to think of some gigantic house with innumerable mansions inside it? It's a strange structure. The problem is that words change and evolve over time. And in reality, the modern English definition of the word mansion, meaning an extremely large and extravagant house, has only been around for a couple hundred years. Before that, it was just an ordinary house. And this is, you know, similar to um, the French word uh, uh, maison or the English word for a pastor's home called a manse. Ever, ever, have you ever seen a pastor with an extravagantly large house? <laughs> pastor's manse is just very small, typically smaller than a typical house. The original Greek word basically refers to a room or any kind of ordinary dwelling place, not an extravagantly large house. It's basically the point Jesus is making there is the same that we find in a passage like Psalm 23, 6. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, famous psalm. In Psalm 23, 6, he says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever and ever. This is not a new idea. Dwelling in God's house. And in his house are many Dwellings. It's open. Y'all come. That's all he's saying. Y'all come. There's plenty of room. The point is not that each of us will get our own dream home like the one we may have seen recently on HGTV. The point is that we'll all dwell with God forever and ever because he is our treasure. When Jesus tells his disciples in John 14 that he goes to prepare a place for them, he's actually alluding to some really important Old Testament texts, chief among them being our Old Testament lesson in Exodus 23. If you have a Bible handy, I'd like to invite you to turn there to Exodus 23, starting at verse 20, as we consider the implications of this foundational passage. Exodus 23 is a really, really important text that is focusing on the first Exodus, but it's also hinting at another Exodus yet to come, the one in Jesus' day. 
And in Exodus 23, 20, Yahweh says to his people, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. So who is this angel that God is preparing to send ahead of his people? As we study this passage closely, we'll soon discover that this is no ordinary angel. In fact, this is the very angel who had appeared to Moses in Exodus 3 at the burning bush. In Exodus 3, we're told that the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. But the odd thing is that verse 4 of that text makes clear that God is the one who called to Moses from the bush. He said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Wait, but the angel of the Lord appeared to him. But now he's saying, it's God. The Hebrew word for angel is the word that can be translated messenger or ambassador. An ambassador or representative of a king would be a malach. That's the word in Hebrew. It doesn't necessarily refer to an angelic being, being, although it can, because they are heavenly ambassadors. But this mysteriously, what we find in Exodus 23 and Exodus 3 refers to a messenger sent by Yahweh who also speaks and acts as Yahweh. This is a messenger sent from God who is God. Angels are created beings, but the messenger who reveals himself to Moses also happens to be the self-existent one. In Exodus 3, he says, I am who I am. Tell this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. Now, returning to Exodus 23, let's study this passage carefully to pick up, uh, picking up again at verse 20 and study this really, really closely. What it says in verse 20 is, Behold, I, who's the one speaking? This is God speaking. This is Yahweh speaking. I send you an angel or messenger before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him. Notice there's a distinction in persons here. This is not me. This is him, personal pronoun. And obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. Recall for a moment that fascinating scene in in Mark chapter 2 where this paralytic is lowered in from the roof and uh, he's, uh, you know, as soon as... He's lowered in from the roof. Jesus does something extraordinary. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. And then people were grumbling, you know, saying to themselves, who can forgive sins but God alone? But then Jesus said, uh, you know, so that we may know that he has the power to forgive sins, which is invisible. He does something visible to prove it. He gives a visible sign of his power and he heals the man. Rise up and walk. The implication is clear. Jesus does, in fact, have the power to forgive sin because he is God in human flesh. But the messenger of Exodus 23, the angel of Exodus 23, has this power to forgive sin or not. So clearly he cannot be referring to an angel like Gabriel. Gabriel and Michael don't have the power to forgive sin. No, this is the one who is sent by God to bring them to the place prepared. This same one also happens to be God. For no one but God can forgive sin. 
But how can God send God? That's what's happening in our text this morning. God is sending God ahead of him to prepare them to the place that he has prepared. If you think about it, that's precisely what John was getting at in the opening of his prologue, the one we read from John chapter 1. He said, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There's this interesting distinction between the Word and God, but there's also this fascinating and mysterious union. An early first century Jewish writer by the name of Philo of Alexandria used similar language, though he, it, there's no record that he ever became a Christian. He actually writes uh, uh, in one of his books, he says, If God at times assumes the likeness of angels or men, we must understand this, that he on occasion took the place of an angel as far as appearance went without changing his own real nature. For the advantage of him who was not as yet able to bear the sight of the true God, those who are unable to bear the sight of God look upon his image, his angel word, capital W, his angel word as himself. In another place, this same Jewish thinker actually <clears throat> writes of a second God. This is a Jewish monotheist, but he's picking up on some of these strange passages in the Old Testament where he sees there are two gods mentioned in the text. How do we, how do we put this together? There were some who actually, uh, there are scholars today, one in particular at uh, UC Berkeley, I interviewed him on my show, and he talked about the fact that there was even, before the time of Christianity, a kind of binatarianism. We are Trinitarian, binatarian. There's two uh, texts, sometimes two deities in the text, that, but they're also one. So the two become one. So they were wrestling with these themes. Some people thought that was a heresy, but they were still wrestling with it, even before the time of Christ. Now take a look at verse 22 of Exodus 23. If you carefully obey his voice and do all I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. It's interesting, isn't it? If you obey his voice and do all I say. There's an interesting Aramaic translation of that Hebrew passage, ancient Aramaic, that was written by Jewish scribes that says this, if you heed the voice of my word, capital W, the voice of my word and do all that he speaks, I will be an enemy to your enemy. So in other words, what seems to be clear is that many ancient Jews before the time of Christ believed that the angel of the Lord was actually in some way distinct from the Lord, but distinct from God, but also was God. And they also referred to that angel of the Lord as the word. There are a lot of times, a lot of people will say this language from John, which in Greek is called the logos, that it's like this Greek philosophy and apologetic to, to Greeks in the first century, it's actually using the same kind of familiar language to Aramaic-speaking Jews because it's matching what they were saying if you look at uh, a lot of the uh, Jewish writings from the time. He's speaking the language. They were these assumptions about the angel of the Lord whom they referred to as the angel word or the word of God, which is why John said the things the way he did at the opening of his gospel. Now listen to the pronouns carefully, starting in Exodus 23, verse 22. If you carefully obey his voice and do all I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies. Again, Yahweh is the one speaking. 
But notice how he instructs the people of Israel to carefully obey his voice and do all that I say. In other words, there appears to be both a distinction of persons, that is, between the God who sends and the God who is sent. There also seems to be a kind of blurring of the distinction between the messenger's voice and the speaker's voice. They're, they're saying the same thing. If you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, I will be an enemy to your enemies. What's really interesting is how these verses in Exodus seem to fit with the words we find at the opening of another chapter in the Old Testament, and that's Judges chapter 2. And it's so interesting, I'll invite you to turn there if you have uh, your Bible handy. Judges chapter 2. This is the, after the Exodus, the people are in the land, but they're not obeying. And in the beginning of Judges 2, the angel of the Lord appears to the people in some kind of human form or angelic form. And the angel of the Lord says, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So in Exodus 23, God says, I will send my angel ahead of you and you must listen to his voice. And in Judges 2, the angel of the Lord confronts the people saying, you have not obeyed my voice. But the angel uh, or messenger of Yahweh also said, I brought you up out of Egypt into the land that I swore to give you your fathers. The angel of the Lord swore to give the land to the fathers? I thought that Yahweh was the one that brought the people out of Egypt. I thought that Yahweh was the one who swore to give the land of the fathers. Well, in fact, it was Yahweh because the angel of the Lord, though he's distinct from Yahweh, also happens to be Yahweh. It's a little mysterious, isn't it? Now think for a moment about the land promises. You know, in Genesis 12, we're told that the Lord appeared to Abraham, this is Yahweh, who appears to Abraham, and he says, to your offspring I will give this land. In chapter 13, he appears to him again and says, lift up your eyes and look for the place where you are, for the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. Chapter 15, again the Lord appears saying, I am Yahweh who brought you up out of Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to possess. So then how is it that the angel of the Lord can say in Judges 2 that I'm I brought you out of Egypt and I into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. The reason he can say this is that because he too is Yahweh. You see, the Trinity didn't begin to exist in the New Testament period. The Trinity has always been there. God has always been one in essence and three in person. And if that's really the case, then this is precisely the kind of language in the Old Testament that we should expect to find. This kind of mysterious language that is hard to figure out. That God is one in essence and three in person. If you take a look at Jude 5, Jude chapter 5, we actually find this language that it was Jesus who saved the people out of Egypt. That's weird. I recently had the opportunity on the uh, White Horse Inn episode to interview a couple of authors who have written a book on the subject of the angel of the Lord. And during that conversation, one of the authors uh, said that 
too often we as Christians read the Old Testament, read the Bible in a kind of a Unitarian way. Just thinking in terms of God doing and saying certain things. But he suggested that when we actually go back and read the Old Testament, we should stop to ask which person of the Godhead is acting and speaking in a given passage. Think about that sometime as you're reading. Which person of the Godhead is acting and speaking in a given passage? We've just looked at a number of parallels between Exodus 23 and Judges 2, but there are also some interesting similarities between what we find in this part of Exodus and the account of the transfiguration in Matthew 17. You know the story. The disciples are, uh, they suddenly notice that Jesus' clothing and his face are shinier than they used to be. And uh, two others appear there with him. It's Moses and Elijah. They don't know that immediately because they didn't know what they looked like, but Jesus told them later. So they're with Moses and Elijah. And then uh, we see in verse 5 of Matthew 17 that a bright cloud appeared and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. By the way, if you're you're in Christ, that's true of you. If you're in Christ, he is well pleased with you. Stay connected to the vine. If he says here, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, listen to him. That's the voice from the cloud. But it's a clear echo of our text this morning from Exodus 23 where the Lord says of the angel whom he will say ahead of the, send ahead of his people, pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Here in Matthew 17, God says this of Jesus, listen to him. Now, let's go back to Exodus 23. Exodus 23, let's, this time let's focus on verses 23 and through 25. Exodus 23, verse 23, when my angel goes before you and brings you to the land of the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hittites, and Jebusites, and all the other ites, termites, whatever they are, <laughs> get rid of the ites. And I blot them out. When, when my angel goes before you to this land of the, the Canaanites, and I blot them out, see the interesting distinction of persons, but also unity. You shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them. You shall not serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away. Do you see this change in the pronouns? It's it's mysterious. It's fascinating how the language goes back and forth from what the Lord will do and what this angel will do. But then in verse 25, there appear to be two distinct Yahwehs mentioned. After all, Yahweh is the one speaking, and yet he's the one who says, you shall serve Yahweh your God, and he will bless your bread. But then he adds, and I will take sickness away. The only way to account for the strange language that we find in this passage is if the angel sent by Yahweh happens to be the second person of the Trinity, Jesus himself. There's another Old Testament text I'd like us to look at this morning, and that is found in the writings of the prophet Malachi. So uh, I'll be looking, if you'd like to turn there, to Malachi 3, the first four verses. The prophet Malachi, in the opening of chapter 3, says, or God speaking through the prophet, says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. 
Now that word messenger that we find there is actually the same word we've been studying. It's the same word malach, which can be translated angel or messenger or ambassador. And it makes sense here to translate it as messenger because in John, uh, sorry, in Matthew 11, verse 9, Jesus actually quotes this very passage and applies it to John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the messenger who prepares the way before the Lord. In other words, John was the one who was preparing for God's return. But in the second half of verse 1, another messenger comes into view. After the first messenger prepares the way, Quote, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. Again, we need to look carefully at the words of this important passage. At the end of verse 1, we're specifically told that the Lord of hosts is the one speaking. He is the one who, will, who says, Behold, I send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Who did John prepare the way for? He prepared the way for Jesus. Who must be talking in this passage? It must be the second person of the Trinity because he's the one who, unless you think of it in terms of you know, the, God's overall mission work, it's possible that you see it as the Father. But then another Lord comes into view in the same verse. And the Lord whom you seek, the Lord is talking, the Lord whom you seek will come to his temple. It seems to be a, another person. Once again, there are two lords mentioned in this one verse. The first is the one speaking who says, I send. And the other is the one sent who eventually comes to his temple. But now notice what happens in the final part of verse 1. The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming. The first messenger was John the Baptist, but now another messenger is in view. This is none other than the angel whom God had promised to send back in Exodus 23. The messenger of the covenant. This messenger is clearly being identified as the Lord. And on the night of his betrayal, and the same Lord shared a meal with his disciples saying, The cup that I have poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. This is Jesus. He is the messenger of the covenant promised by Malachi. Now, after all this Old Testament background, let's head to the Gospel of John. We've been on this long journey, this long circuitous route, and now we're back home here with uh, John chapter 14. Well, before we get to John 14, listen to a moment, listen for a moment to the words of John 5, where Jesus tells the religious leaders the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me, and the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you have, do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is they that bear witness about me. Have you seen the scriptures bearing witness about him this morning? In the space of a few verses, Jesus here has kept repeating this one idea over and over that he has been sent by the Father. In fact, he speaks of being sent seven times in this one chapter, 40 times, over 40 times in the gospel at large. 
if you study this, this if you look for the verbs, my father has sent me 40-something times throughout the Gospel of John. And if you think about it, being sent is the very thing that characterizes a messenger or an ambassador. The angel or messenger of the Lord is the one who is sent by Yahweh. And yet, this same angel who is sent by Yahweh also happens to be Yahweh. And according to John, this is precisely who Jesus is. He is the one sent by the Father. He is the Word who was with God and who is God, who pitched His tent among us. And as we've seen so clearly this morning, all the Old Testament Scriptures bear witness of Him. They don't just prophesy and hint about His coming. He's actually there in the text speaking on some occasions. Now turn to John 14, and let's look at this passage closely. John 14, beginning at verse 2. Jesus says, in my Father's house are many rooms, many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Here, Jesus actually seems to be hinting at something he's already told his disciples. Would I have told you? He's already said it. So the question some scholars ask is, where did he say it? What's he he referring back to? Some scholars have made a good case that Jesus is actually referring back to something he said just a few verses earlier at the tail end of John 13. If you look at John 13, verse 33, he says, Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. And in verse 36, Peter asks, Wait, Lord, where are you going? Where I am going. You cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterwards. He's talking about going and that they will be with them sometime soon, sometime afterwards. So this was, since this was spoken in the upper room on the night of his betrayal, Jesus seems to be alluding to his death. That's where he's going presently, which is why his disciples cannot follow him here at this time, though they too will follow him sometime later. Some argue even that there's an allusion to Peter's manner of death because when Peter says, Lord, you know, where are you going? I want to go too. And Jesus says, you won't follow me now, but you will later. Well, Peter was also crucified, according to church history, some 30 years later. So there could be some kind of hint of his death that he will follow Jesus in that same way. But in light of all this, let's go back and read verse 2. In my Father's house are many dwellings. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? So what is Jesus' first stopping place as he goes to prepare a place for his disciples? He's just made clear to Peter that he must first go to Golgotha. This is how he will end up securing a place for his people, just as the Passover lamb secured safe passage for the Israelites during the first exodus. You see, in order for us to be adopted and brought near, Jesus himself had to be exiled and sent away in our place. In order for us to be justified, he had to be condemned. And if I go to prepare a place for you, Jesus says in John 14, verse 3, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way that where I'm going. Lord, we don't know the way, Thomas said. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
No one comes to the Father but through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you do know him and have seen him. Here in these unmistakably clear words, we find some of the same things we've been noticing throughout all the Old Testament passages we've been studying. First of all, there's a clear distinction between Jesus and the Father. They are not the same person. And yet, there is a mysterious union that exists between the Father and the Son. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father, because he's the image of the invisible God, as Paul says in Colossians 1. If you've come to know Jesus, then you've come to know the Father as well. The same Jesus has been with his people all along. He's, been, he's the very one whom God promised to send back in Exodus 23. When he said, Behold, I send a messenger before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. And this is the same one who again and again reveals that he was sent by the Father throughout the Gospel of John, for example. And John 14, here in John 14, he tells all of his disciples that he goes to prepare a place for his people. Here, of course, he's referring to the ultimate exodus, that great place, that land where sin and death have been eradicated, the ultimate promised land to the heavenly Jerusalem. Brothers and sisters, as you make your way to that celestial city, pay careful attention to his voice. As we've seen, Jesus doesn't merely show us the way. He doesn't give us instruction list on how to get there. He is the way. According to Hebrews 9, 10, 19, sorry, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain that is his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. What rich imagery. But how can I know that my heart is sprinkled clean? Has your body been washed with pure water? Have you been buried with Christ through baptism? As Paul says in Romans 6, if we've been united with him in his death, we shall certainly be united in his resurrection. Later in the Upper Room Discourse in John 15, he says to the disciples, you are already clean. It's the same word, pure, clean, that we find in the beginning of the Beatitudes. Blessed are the pure in heart. If that verse ever terrifies you, run to John 15, 3. You are already clean because of the words I have declared to you, Jesus says. You see, his word is powerful. We know what the disciples will do in the next couple of chapters. Peter will even deny that he ever knew Jesus, but here he's declared clean, even before it happened. Here in John 15, he and the other disciples are clean by virtue of Christ's declarative word. They were given that ultimate judgment day verdict of the not guilty status ahead of time. They are not guilty, not by virtue of anything that they've done. We know what they're about to do, but they are not guilty because of something done for them by the angel of the Lord, by Jesus they are justified by Christ because in their place condemned he stood because he went ahead of them to Golgotha in order to secure their place in heaven. 
Of course, there's more to salvation than just simply justification. In John 15, Jesus will also say that he is the vine and that we are the branches. If we remain in him, we will produce much fruit. But apart from him, you can do nothing. And Paul, in effect, says the same thing in Ephesians 2 when he says, you know, it's by grace through faith is not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. But we are God's workmanship created in Christ to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us. Good works are not the root. They're the fruit. The root is God's grace. The gift is God's free salvation in Christ. And yet we are called to produce fruit which he will produce in us. Brothers and sisters, this is our calling. If you are attached to the vine, you will produce fruit. Or to use the beautiful imagery from Psalm 23, if the Lord is your shepherd, he will lead you to green pastures and still waters. And whatever, whether your heart stops beating a few decades from now or unexpectedly in a few weeks, you will eventually dwell with the Lord forever and ever. Because not only is he the good shepherd, but he's also the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's how he restores our soul. And that's why goodness and mercy shall follow us all the days of our lives until he has brought us at last to the place that he has prepared for us. Let's pray. Gracious Father, you have been so kind to call us by your grace, to adopt us as your children, and to unite us to Christ. And this morning we ask that by your Spirit you would conform us more and more to his image and likeness, to the end that we may bear more fruit as we make our way to this celestial city. And grant, Father, that we may persevere in that faith, that we may never lose our confidence in Christ, who alone is the way, the truth, in the life. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Let us uh, respond to the hearing of this wonderful news by singing our closing hymn, number 496, Jesus, I Love Thee. Hymn number 496.